sometimes we're surrounded by pig slop and fish guts. The book of Jonah in the Old Testament, God calls Jonah to be a prophet and specifically to go preach to the people of Nineveh. Nineveh, a huge pagan city where no doubt it would be a difficult task, but Jonah basically says no. He's got better things to do. Instead of going to Nineveh, he goes the opposite way, gets on a ship, and God gets his attention real fast. A great storm comes up, and the sailors decide it's because of Jonah that they're facing this awful sea, and so they throw him overboard, and, and he's swallowed by a big fish. He's surrounded by fish guts because he, got, he makes God's big thing small. The book of Luke in the New Testament, Jesus told a parable, Luke chapter 15. He tells of a father who is representative of God and his two sons, representative of all mankind. The oldest son does what he's supposed to do. He helps his father. He's loyal. He does everything he can in the right way. The younger son, on the other hand, decides he knows better than his father. He knows better than God. He just wants to have fun. He wants to party. And so he goes to his father and he says, I want half uh, what's due for me for my inheritance. I want that right now. And the father gives it to him. And he goes to the big city. He parties and he blows all of that money. To where he finds himself in a pigsty in pig slop, having to resort to eating the food that's dedicated to the pigs because he makes God's big thing small. We've come in our journey through the story of chapter 19. Remember, we left last week. The nation of Israel had been unfaithful to God so long that they were judged. The nation of Babylon was allowed to, to conquer them and the Jewish people were taken up to Babylon in exile. Three generations pass as we get into week 19. As we look at the books of Ezra and Haggai, we, we see those three generations pass. And by the way, Daniel lives and serves in this, this pagan kingdom, represents and has a great witness for God throughout that three generations until the rise of the Persian kingdom. The Persian kingdom conquers the Babylonian kingdom. As happens in world history, no kingdom lasts forever. No great power lasts forever. The Persians overtake the Babylonians. And so we say this amazing thing happened. For th three generations, the people of Israel are up in Babylon. When Cyrus comes to power, he decides the Israelites can go home. And even more, he decides that the Israelites can do what was so crucial, so symbolic to them, they can rebuild a temple. They have a big thing to do for God, to rebuild the temple. But the question is, how do they do with that? Did they make God's big thing small? Yes, we see exactly that happen. So today, with the hopes that we in our lives, our individual lives, can keep 
God's big things the main thing in our lives. They're the hope that we can stay on task in growing in our faith and growing in our relationship with God. We're going to ask three questions coming from the book of Ezra and Haggai. The answers to those questions, I think, can be transformational in your life. The first question is this, why do we lose focus? Why do we lose focus on keeping God's big things big in our lives? We pick up the story of Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. That is an amazing statement there. Cyrus is a follower of what's called Zoroastrianism. He, he is not a Christian or not a, a believer in the one true God. He, he's not even close to being a follower of God, yet he understands and gets a message from God that needs to allow these people to go, and, and he's going to give them a blank check. He's going to give them all the resources they need to rebuild this temple. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God, see it's not even his God, may their God be with them. So he's saying, I'll give you whatever you need to rebuild this temple, but you've got to do the work. You're the construction crew. Now that's a great deal. In the Old Testament, you've probably picked up on this already, but let me remind you if you have it. In the Old Testament, God lived among his people. He was present in a very real manifestation with his people. The Garden of Eden, you see him there in the garden. As you see the people in the Exodus, God travels in what's called the tabernacle. He actually dwells physically in their presence. And then as Solomon is moved to build the temple in Jerusalem, God comes to dwell in what's called the Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the temple. God comes to live in that temple. He wants to be present with his people. He wants to be engaged in their daily lives. For the children of Israel, the temple was a physical place to remind them that God was with them. Consider the location of the temple. Was it built high atop a steep mountain that no one could reach? Was it built out in the middle of the desert where no one could be there unless they made a long and difficult pilgrimage? No, it was smack dab in the middle of the most prominent and populated city in ancient Israel, Jerusalem. I've been to Israel. You can see the temple, the temple mount, from all over Jerusalem. Every time anyone walked past the temple, they were reminded that God wanted to be right there with them. He wants to be in the neighborhood. The temple reminded them and tells all of us that God wants to be with his people. That's the big thing. God wants to be a prominent part. He wants to be the first part of all of our lives. Here he says to the people, you go rebuild the temple. He even moves a pagan king to provide the resources. You go rebuild the temple. And they start off okay. Down to chapter 3, when the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled their towns. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem, they had a community meeting. 
Then Joshua, son of Josedek, and his fellow priests, and Jerubbabel, son of Sheatil, and this is, I can't, Zerubbabel is one of my all-time favorite names. Don't you just love saying Zerubbabel? But I've never noticed any parents call their kids Zerubbabel. I think that there's a reason for that. Can you imagine getting mad at Zerubbabel and trying to get his name out a few times in a lecture? Stumble all over that sucker, right? Zerubbabel. But Zerubbabel pays it. He's an important leader in getting this temple rebuilt. They began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now see, there was a problem. There always has been. God gave his men and women free will from Adam and Eve forward. He gave them the choice to choose to be faithful to, to have a relationship with him, or to do what they wanted to do. And so from the very beginning, Adam and Eve exercise that crucial part of our human nature that wants to do what we want to do and not what God wants to do. The Bible calls that sin. And because of that sin, it causes a gap in our relationship with God. And so, you remember I said God dwelled in the Holy of Holies? One time a year, one man, the chief high priest, was uh, allowed to go in to the Holy of Holies. It was on the Day of Atonement. And he would take the sacrifice of a pure animal. And that sacrifice would be given so that the people could be forgiven. Their relationship with God could be healthy and restored. And so here, you see, they haven't rebuilt the temple yet, but they're getting ready to do it. And they begin, they build an altar and they start to, to sacrifice to God. They start to worship God again, like it was always written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They're off to a great start. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. They have a great start to making God. Imagine the relief you must feel after three generations to go back to your homeland. They're off to a great start. But they soon lose focus. Why do we lose focus? There are two reasons. First, if you read around the rest of Ezra, you see that the people around them, not Israelites, didn't want the Israelites to become strong again. They, they were causing problems for them. One reason we lose focus is because of external opposition. External opposition. There may be people around you that don't want you to put God first. Here, they don't want the temple to be, be, be rebuilt. But I don't think that was the the main reason they lost their focus. They lost focus because of internal distraction. They lose their focus. Now God raised up a, Haggai, a prophet named Haggai to preach to them, to get them back on task, to focus on getting this temple rebuilt. As we open up the book of Haggai, you see the problem, verses 2 through 4. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. Basically, they're saying, we're not ready to do it. We're not, we're not going to get around to that. Wait. Basically, they're saying, we are kings of procrastination. I know that never happens to any of us. None of us ever put off things that God wants us to do. But that's exactly, that's the excuse they make. Then the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Is it time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house, the temple, remains a ruin? 
What's he saying? They have got themselves busy and focused on all other kinds of things. You know, I think all of us with our free will have a little bit of attention deficit disorder. All of us can lose focus on what's really important. All of us can have different passions that come up in our lives that take our focus off of growing in our relationship to God. Max Licato, who is a co-author of the story, Max Licato writes of what he calls his closet of forgotten passions. I know this doesn't happen to you. I can tell you it happens to me and has happened to me. I get new obsessions, things that grab my attention, and I get into and then often go right away from. They don't last. Max Licato talks in this closet of an expensive telescope that he bought when he was interested in astronomy that now lies in the corner with dust on it. He tells of a stepping stone kit that he was going to put in his garden that's unopened. He talks about pictures, boxes of pictures that were supposed to be put in albums and never got there. It is so easy to be all about everything and not get anything really done. Ezra 4.24 gives us these sad words, thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. If you know your calendar, that means that for 16 years, after they came back from exile, for 16 years, they spent their priorities, their time, their resources on stuff for themselves, building their own houses, building their own lives, building their own kingdoms instead of rebuilding the house of God for 16 years. Friends, the time can multiply quickly. It passes like that. And we spend all of our life on things that don't matter as much as putting God first. C.S. Lewis wrote, if we put first things first, we get the second things thrown in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and second things. Why do we lose focus? External opposition, internal distraction. But none of us want to stay there. In fact, God won't let us stay there. The second question is this. How does God get us back on track? How does God get us back on track? He gets us back on track by fish guts and pig slop. Consequences of our choices. Look what Haggai goes on to say in chapter 1. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, and listen to this carefully. This is so powerful and insightful. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. What's he saying? Maybe you've experienced this. Maybe you have worked for something and dreamed of something and you get it and still feel empty inside. 
not satisfied, not fulfilled. You put your efforts into secondary things in lieu of giving God first place. And it feels unsatisfying and empty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may be able to take pleasure, or I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains in ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Pig slop and fish guts are negative consequences. A lack of fulfillment, a lack of having a sense of purpose, a lack of knowing that you are worthy and have a, have a sense of mission, that comes when we focus on pleasing ourselves and building up a big life and kingdom for ourselves. I believe it's only when we fulfill our God-given purpose. It's only when we focus on the big thing for God that then we can feel that sense of confidence, that sense of purpose, that sense of connection, that sense of fulfillment and satisfaction. That's what's going on here. How does God get us back on track? It is often through allowing us to experience the consequences of our selfish choices. For every sin, there is consequence. God, when he created the world, put in place natural laws that would ensure there would be negative results for our own sinfulness. Now, hear me clearly. I don't believe every test and every trial you can draw a direct line of causation to. Not every test and trial is because of the result of a person's sin, but most of them, the great majority of them, are a direct result of our faithfulness or lack of faith, the way that we live our lives, the choices that we make, the priorities that we have. God brings those troubles, God brings those consequences into our lives to bring us back to himself. His purpose and discipline is not just to get on us. It's not to make us feel bad. It's not to assert his authority over us, although he is in authority over us. It is not his purpose. His purpose is to bring us back to himself. Now, blessed are those who can read the words in Scripture and listen and understand and obey. But I think most of us probably are like me. When I was a teenager, my dad would say to me, you don't need to do that. If you do that, this is going to happen. And so what would I do? Go out and do what he said not to do. Why? Because I thought I was smarter than him. Not understanding, he was trying to save me the trouble of having to go through that consequence. I know there are not any other hard-headed people in here like me. He was trying to not have me experience that consequence, but to warn me away from it. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 12, Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. 
For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. I want you to think for a moment. Are your priorities in order? Are God's big things your big thing? Or have they been crowded out by other small things? And if they have, what consequences? How's God trying to get your attention? How's he trying to get you back on track? Leads me to the third question. What is the condition of God's house today? Now, uh, church history, the 2,000 years of it, have kind of confused this. When you ask a lot of people where God's house is, they will point to the church building. When I say, what is the condition of God's house? They'll look around at the physical building and say, well, you know, that end of the building needs a little work on the roof. And the parking lot, it's not so good. That's not what God's house is at all when we talk about the church. As you move to the New Testament, the concept changes. God does no longer reside in a physical building or place like a tabernacle or a temple. Acts 2.38 tells us this, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That is, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, to dwell in you. 1 Corinthians goes on, <clears throat> do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, you are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. When I'm asking you, what is the condition of God's house today, it basically is this, how much are you allowing God to live in you, to live in your decisions, to live in your actions, to live through your relationships. How much is God present? How much do you allow God, his spirit, to lead you, to fill you in your life? We all are temples. So building a house is an ongoing purpose. Building the house of God uh, takes place every day, every hour, as we interact with others, as we think, as we speak, as we do. It's building the house. And so that is the big thing. God wants to be first in your house. God wants to be the one that is first in your life. Jesus, when asked what's the first and greatest commandment, said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbors as yourself. 
Matthew 6, 33 puts it a little differently, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, if we put first things first, we get the second things thrown in. But if we put second things first, we lose both the first and the second things. God wants to get our attention today. But I know it's not easy. The great evangelist and minister D.L. Moody was asked one time by one of his church members over a century ago, why are you always praying, Lord, fill me up? And always saying, Lord, fill me up. I mean, I get sick of hearing it. Why do you always say that? Mr. Moody responded, because I leak. Truth be told, it's not easy to allow God to fill us and to live through us every day. But he's more than willing if we will allow him. He is more than willing to fill us up. To live through us, to love through us, to make a difference through us. When Jonah found himself in the midst of fish guts, he repented, and God used him in a mighty way. When the prodigal son found him in the pigsty covered with slop, he repented and went home, and his father ran to him. And opened his arms with love and threw a big party. When the people of Israel found themselves not being faithful to God and rebuilding his temple. They listened to Haggai, they repented, and they rebuilt the dwelling place of God. From confession and repentance comes blessing. From Confession and repentance comes the blessings of God. So this day, what's God trying to teach us? Are we making his big thing our big thing? Are we making his big thing small? Fathers, we think about these things. I pray today that you spoke to us at as you've made clear through your words, it's out of love that you bring us back, you get us back on track. Pray today you've brought to mind what it is we need to change. You brought to mind not only what it is, but you also have moved our will. Let us truly say, fill me up. Because we do leak. We, we don't mean to make a mess out of our life. If you fill us up, we can never run dry. I pray today that you're hearing the confessions of your people. That you're hearing the repentance of your people. That you're doing the work of restoration. Lord, this week, fill us up every hour. Let us be about loving you and loving others and serving others in your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.